Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Bedouins is a collection of essays by James Honecker, a music critic and writer who lived from 1857 to 1921. The book covers a wide range of topics related to art, music, literature, and culture. Some of the subjects discussed include the famous opera singer Mary Garden, the composers Debussy and Chopin, the painter Botticelli, the writer Poe, and the authors Anatole France and Mirbeau. Honecker also explores other subjects such as the artistic temperament, idols and ambergris, grindstones, and a mask of music. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Hi, Superwoman, L.A. Butte, that little girl down Boston Way who had mastered William James and Boris Cetes before she was in her teens behaved badly one afternoon. Possibly it was the sultry weather or growing pains in the psychic sphere, of course, or Perhaps, it may have been due to the reflexes from prolonged attention to the Freudian psychoanalysis and the significance of twilight sleep, but whatever the cause, that precocious child flew off her serene handle and literally sassed the entire household. The tantrum over she afterward described it as a uric acid storm and order raining once more in Bach Bay. She was severely interrogated by her male parent as to the whys and wherefores of her singular deviation from accustomed glacial intellectual objectivity. Her answer was in the proper key. My multiple personalities failed to coordinate. Hence the distressing lack of centripetal functioning. She was immediately forgiven. Multiple personalities are to blame for much in this veil of tears, that is, if you are unlucky or lucky enough to be possessed of the seven devils of psychology. Mary Garden was, no doubt, a naughty little girl in her time. That she climbed trees, fought boys twice her size, stuck out her tongue at pious folk, scandalized her parents, and tore from the heads of nice girls handfuls of hair, I am sure. Had a Gabler thus treated gentle Thea Elstad in the play. But was this demon Mary aware of her multiple personalities? Of her complexes? Her art fusion is such perfect synthesis. Subconscious is nowadays an excuse for the original sin with which we are saddled by theologians. Well, one bad turn deserves another, and we may easily picture the wild Scottish thistle defiantly shrugging shoulders at law and order. She did not analyze her will to raise Mary Hell. No genius of her order ever does. There had been signs and omens. 
Her mother before her birth had dreamed wonderful dreams, dreamed and prayed that she might become a singer. But even maternal intuition could not have foreseen such a swan triumphantly swimming through the troubled waters of life. A swan, did I say? A condor, an eagle, a peacock, a nightingale, a panther, a society dame, a gallery of moving pictures, a siren, an indomitable fighter, a human woman with a heart as big as a house, a lover of sport, an electric personality, and a canny scotch lassie who can force from an operatic manager wills of anguish because of her close bargaining over a contract, in a word, a superwoman. My dear friend and master, the late Remy de Grumont, wrote that man differs from his fellow animals he didn't say lower because of the diversity of his aptitudes. Man is not the only organism that shows multiple personalities, even in plant life pigmentation and the power of developing new species prove that our vaunted superiorities are only relative. I may refer you to the experiments of Hugo de Vries at the Botanical Gardens, Amsterdam, where the grand old Dutch scientist presented me with 16-leaf clover naturally developed and grown between sunset and dawn, also an evening primrose anther along Archeon which shoots into new flowers. Multiple personalities again. In the case of Mary Garden, we call her artistic aptitudes the gift of versatility. All distinguished actresses have this serpent-like facility of shedding their skin and taking on a fresh one at will. She is Cleopatra with serpent and scarab for sign or Melisande, Frine or Monavanna, as they she is both saint and courtesan, her Salome breeds horror, and in the simplicities of Jean the juggler of Notre Dame a merry garden, hitherto submerged, appears, tender, boyish, sweet, fantastic, a ray of moonshine has entered his head and made of him an irresponsible yet irresistibly charming youth. Not without warrant is karma believed in by people whose imagination cannot be penned behind the bars of now. Before today was yesterday, and to traverse the eternal corridor of time has been the fate of mankind. The eternal return rather say, the eternal recommencement mad, as it seems, is not to be made mock of. It is always the same pair of eyes that peer through windows opening on infinity. What the karmas of Mary Garden? In spirit land what avatars? Is she the reincarnation of that frine of the splendid scarlet sins, or the Faustine who crowded into a moment the madness of joy and crime, or the recrudescence of a Sappho who turned her back on the Lacadian promontory, turned from the too masculine Phaon and sought her Anactoria, sought and wooed her with lyric sighs, as she recaptured this extraordinary Mary of Aberdeen, the soul of Aspasia, who beguiled Pericles and artistic Athens with the sinuous irony of the serpent, and Gismonda, Louise, and Violetta, all those self sonorous sinners was she in her interior existence any or all of them? Did she know the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome? Henry James has warned us not to ask of an author why he selects a particular subject for treatment. It is a dangerous question to put, the answer might prove disconcerting. And with Miss Garden the same argument holds.
Her preference for certain characters is probably dictated by reasons obscure even to herself. With her the play instinct is imperious, it dominates her daylight hours, it overflows into her dream life. Again the sounding motive of multiple personalities, karma, subconsciousness, the profound core of human nature. And on the palette of her art there is the entire gamut of tones, from passionate purple to the iridescent delicacies of iris gray. That Mary Garden interprets a number of widely differentiated characters is a critical platitude. Chapter and verse might be given for her excellences as well as her defects. Nor does she depend upon any technical formula or formulas. Versatility is her brevet of distinction. An astounding versatility. Now, the ways and means of the acting singer are different from actors in the theater. Dramatic values are altered. The optique of the opera shifts the stock attitudes, gestures, poses, and movements into another and more magnified dimension. Victor Morrill, master of all singing actors, employed a sliding scale of values in his delineation of De Nevers, Don Giovanni, Iago, and Falstaff. His power of characterization enabled him to portray a Valentine true to type, nevertheless individual, and if there is a more banal figure on the operatic boards than Valentine, we do not know his name, perhaps Faust. But every year the space that separates the lyric from the dramatic stage is shrinking. Richard Wagner was not the first composer to stress action, he is the latest, however, whose influence has been tremendously far-reaching. He insisted that the action should suit the singing word. Today acting and singing are inextricably blended, and I can conceive of nothing more old-fashioned and outmoded than the Wagnerian music drama as interpreted in the dramatic terms of the old Wagnerian singers. They walked, rather waddled, through the mystic mazes of the score, shouted or screamed the music, and generally were prodigious bores except when Lily Lehman sang. After all, Wagner must be some. When Jean Doreska pictured a Tristany trifle of the carpet night, he both sang and acted. It was the beginning of the new Wagner, a totally changed Wagner, else his music drama will remain in dusty pigeonholes. Debussy has sounded the modern key. There is born, or reborn nothing is new since the early Florentines a new opera, and in its train new methods of interpretation. Merely to sing well is as futile as attempting to act though voiceless. The modern trend is away from melodrama, whether Italian, French, or German, away from its antique, creaking machinery. Debussy patterned after Wagner for a time and then blazed new paths. As Serge Prokofiev so acutely observed to me, in Pelias and Melisande Debussy rewrote Tristan and his salt. The emotional scale is transposed to fewer dynamic values and rhythms made more subtle. The action is shown as in a dream. The play's the thing, and reality is muffled. Elsewhere we have studied the Melisande of Mary Garden. Like her Monavanna, it reveals the virtues and shortcomings of the new opera.
Too static for popular taste, it is nevertheless an escape from the tyranny of operatic convention. Like the rich, we shall always have grand opera with us. It is the pabulum of the unmusical, the unthinking, the tasteless. Its theatricalisms are more depressing than Sardou's. The quintessence of art, or the arts, which the modern Frenchmen, above all, the new Russian composers from the mighty Slavic races may come the artistic, perhaps the religious salvation of the world for I am a believer in Dostoevsky's, not Tolstoy's, Christianity, are distilling into their work is for more auditors than the ten superior persons scattered throughout the universe of whom Hoismans wrote. There is a growing public that craves, demands, something different from the huge paraphernalia of crudely colored music, scenery, costume, lath and plaster, and vociferous singing. Oh, the dullness, the staleness, the brutal obviousness of it all. Every cadence with its semaphoric signaling, every phrase and its accompanying gesture. Poetry is slain at a stroke, the ear promise crammed, but imagination goes hungry. The new art and art of precious essences, an evocation, an enchantment of the senses, a sixth senses are planetary ideal. And in the new opera, Mary Garden is the supreme exemplar. She sounds the complex modern note. She does not represent, she evokes. She sings and she acts, and the densely woven web is impossible to disentangle. Her Gaelic temperament is of an intensity, she is white-hot, a human dynamo with sudden little retortions that betray a tender, sensitive soul through the brilliant, hard shell of an emerald personality, she is also the opal with its chameleonic hues. Her rhythms are individual. Her artistic evolution may be traced. She stems from the Gallic theater. She has studied Sarah Bernhardt and Yvette Gilbert the perfect flowering of the Dizus, but she pins her faith to the effortless art of Eleonora Duzay. The old contention that Stuart Coquelin and Henry Irving does not interest her so much as does Duzay. We have discussed the Coquelin-Irving crux. Should an actor leave nothing to chance or should he improvise on the spur of high emotions? That is what the question comes to. Miss Garden denied her adherence either to Coquelin or Irving. I asked her to give us a peep into her artistic cuisine while she prepared her sauces. Notwithstanding her refusal to let us participate in the brewing of her magic broth, I still believe that she sided with Coquelin. She is eminently cerebral. And yet her chief appeal is to the imagination. Not a stroke of her camel's hair brush, not the boldest massing of colors, are left to chance. She knows the flaming way she came, she knows the misty return. Not a tone of her naturally rich, dark voice, but takes on the tinting of the situation. This doesn't forbid a certain latitude for temperamental variations, which are plentiful at each of her performances. She knows tempo rubato and its value in moods. She has mastered, too, the difficult quality described by William Gillette as the first-time illusion in acting. 
various are the merry gardens in her map of art. And she is ours. Despite her Scottish birth, she has remained invincibly Yankee. Despite long residence in her beloved Paris, enough American has rubbed off on her and the resilient, dynamic, overflowing, and proud spirit that informs her art and character are American or nothing. Race counts. Can any good come out of our Nazareth of art? The answer is inevitable. Yes, Mary Garden. She is our Mary. Lyrically, dramatically ours, yet an orchid. Dear old Flaubert forcibly objected to Sarah Bernhardt being called a social expression. But she was, and this despite her Dutch ancestry and the exotic strain in her blood. Miss Garden may not emphasize her American side, but it is the very skeleton of her artistic organism. Would that an Aubrey Beardsley lived to note in evanescent traceries her potent personality, a rare something that arouses the emotion of recognition, but which we cannot define. Come, said Berlioz to Legouve in the early years of the third decade of the last century. I am going to let you see something which you have never seen and someone whom you shall never forget. Berlioz meant the playing and personality of Frederick Chopin. Garden is leagues asunder from Chopin who was the rarest apparition of his age, but as an interpretative artist she is rare enough for sympathetic writers to embalm in the amber of their pagan prose, definitely to pin to their pages this gorgeous dragonfly. Another bribe to her audience is the beauty of Mary Garden. But I do not wish here to dwell upon its value in her unforgettable portrayals of the dear dead grand ladies, the stately courtesans of the dim past. Stephen Mallarmé wrote a poem, though not in verse, depicting a crowd assembled in the canvas house of the interpreter of past things. George Moore thus Englished the future phenomenon. A showman tells the despairing, ugly men and women of his wonderful prize. No sign regales you of the spectacle within, for there is not now a painter capable of presenting any sad shadow of it. I bring alive and preserved through the years by sovereign science, a woman of old time. Some folly, original and simple, in ecstasy of gold, I know not what she names it. Her hair falls with the grace of rich stuffs about her face and contrasts with the blood-like nudity of her lips. In place of her vain gown she has a body, and her eyes, but like rare stones, are not worth the look that leaps from the happy flesh, the breasts, raised as if filled with eternal milk, are pointed to the sky, and the smooth limbs still keep the salt of the primal sea. You think of fair-haired Melisande as she exquisitely murmurs her pathetic J.E.N.E. sweet Pahiru's I.C.I. Some years ago in Paris I saw and heard the Garden Traviata. The singing was superlative, she then boasted a coloratura style that would surprise those who now only know her vocalization. It was, however, the conception and acting that intrigued me. Originality stamped both. The death scene was of unusual poignancy, evidently the young American had been spying upon Bernhardt and Duse. 
This episode adumbrated the marvelous death of Millicent, the most touching that I can recall in either the lyric or dramatic theater. It is a pity that she cannot find sterner stuff than Massonet, LaRue, Fevrier, and the rest of that puff-paste decorative school. There are composers, too, of more vital caliber than Camille Erlinger. Debussy is a master, but there must be newer men who could view Mary Garden as the ideal exponent of their music. Meanwhile, she has discovered a role in which she would pique the curiosity of the most uncritical Mossbacks. She has added a soul to her long list. Mary Garden and his soul. Incredible. Nevertheless, an interesting experiment this if she could be persuaded to voice the sorrows of the Irish princess. It would be no longer Wagner. It would suffer a rich sea change. Wagner muted, perhaps Wagner undone, certainly unsung if we remember glorious Olive Fremstad. But a magical assault, with more than a hint of the perversely exotic we feel in Aubrey Beardsley's drawings of Assault and Tristan. The modern note again. Beardsley paraphrasing Botticelli, Watteau plucking at the robe of Rubens, W.C. smiting the courts of Wagner. Such an assault would be too bewildering to be true. Two. Intimate. The penalty of publicity is one which singers seldom evade. Little need to give the reason, nevertheless, for sensitive souls it is a trial to see one's personality put in the wash, squeezed, and on up to dry with other linen in the pitiless laundry of the press. Some singers are born advertisers, some achieve advertising, but few have advertising thrust upon them. That sort usually fade into Shadowland rather than face the fierce white light which beats about the operatic throne. Really, it must be disconcerting for a woman singer to hear herself discussed as if she were a racehorse. Every point in her makeup is put on a platter ready to serve hot in the newspapers. You fancy yourself overhearing the conversation of jockeys and trainers. Why sigh, Bill? that their filly is going queer. Just look at her fetlocks, and her crupper is getting too heavy. Take her out for an hour's spin on the downs. Breathe her a bit and then give her a hard sweat and run and a rub down. No water, Bill, mind ye, or I'll knock your block off. The private life of a prima donna is not unlike that of a racing mare's. Flesh reduction, with all the succulent food and champagne are banished, indulgence spells decadence, and decadence is eagerly noted by the psychic detectives known as music critics. We are not in the game to find fault as simple souls imagine, but to register values, vocal and personal. It's a pity, but this is a condition and not a theory. We have heard of a merry garden cult. Now, as has been said by Dr. Wicksteed, a cult is always annoying to those who do not join in it and generally hurtful to those who do. But is there such a garden cult? We doubt it. She has a certain elect following and for those admirers she can do no wrong. 
she has aroused the critical antagonism of some who, readily enough, point out her obvious limitations. To these the gruff reply of Brahms is appropriate. A presuming youth called his attention to a theme in a work of his which was evidently borrowed from Mendelssohn. That any fool can see, said the crusty Johannes. The voice of Miss Garden is sometimes a voice in the wilderness, sandy, harsh, yet expressive. The same may be said of Geraldine Farrar, who every year is gravitating toward the zone, not of silence, but of the singing actress. A Gallic, not an Italian zone. Voice does not play the major role, acting, that is, dramatic characterization, does. Not to recognize in Miss Garden the quintessence of this art not altogether a new one, and its most perfect flowering is the art of Yvette Gilbert is to miss the real Mary Garden. Voila tout. We saw like misunderstanding of Eleonora Duzay. Immediately she was compared, and unfavorably, with Sarah Bernhard when she was achieving something vastly different and, I think, vastly finer. Sarah was more brilliant, Duzay more human, the one an orchestra, the other an exquisitely balanced string quartet. Mary Garden is the nearest approach to Duzay on the lyric stage. Mary Garden, too, is different in the sense Stendhal meant that banal word. Her cadence speech is not singing in the Italian manner. To begin with, her tonal texture is not luscious. But there are compensations. Every phrase is charged with significance. She paints with her voice, and if her palette is composed of the cooler tones, if the silver grays and somber greens of a Velasquez predominate, it is because she needs just such a gamut with which to load her brush. She is a consummate manipulator of values. To be sure, we do not expect the torrential outbursts of Margaret Matsonar. Why confuse two antithetical propositions? I don't look at one of the Paul Cezans in the rare collection of Miss Lily Bliss expecting the gorgeous hues of a Monticelli. Cezanne is a master of values. And if these similes seem far-fetched which they are not, music and color are twins in the seven hearts then let us pitch upon a more homely illustration, Mary Garden is an opal, Margaret Matsonar a full-blown rose. Voltaire said that the first man who compared a woman to a rose was a poet, the second, an ass. I hope Madame Matsonar will accept the simile in the poetic sense. Nuance, which alone makes art or life endurable, becomes an evocation with Miss Garden. I lament that she is not in a more intimate setting, as the misted fire and rhythmic modulations of her opaline heart and personality are lost in such a huge auditorium as the Lexington Theatre. I saw her, a slip of a girl, at Paris, early in this century, and framed by the opera comique, of whose traditions she is now the most distinguished exponent. She was then something precious, a line of Peyer's prose, the glance of one of da Vinci's strange ladies, a chord by Debussy, honey, tiger's blood, and absinthe, 
or like the enigmatic pallor we see in Renaissance portraits, cruel, voluptuous, and suggesting the only of what owes indifferent. She is all things to all critics. There are those who see in her the fascinating woman, and they are justified in their belief. There are those who discover in her something disquieting, ambiguous, one of Baudelaire's femmes damnees from whom he fashioned his Beethovenian harmonies, fulgurating, profound, descend as le chemin de Ellen for eternal, flagels par un vent qu'any vint pas du ciel. And there is still another group to which I adhere, one that envisages Mary in the more lucid light of an admirable artist, who has fashioned of her body and soul a rare instrument, giving forth the lovely music of attitude, gesture, pose, and rhythm. There are moments when she evokes the image of the shadow of a hummingbird on a star, and often she sounds the shuddering semitones of sex, as in face. The melisand moods are hers, the dim, remote poesy of antique sonorous tapestries, and the modern note of Louise, grazing the vulgar, though purified by passion. But the dissenters no doubt believe in the Cambodian proverb when estimating the singing of both Geraldine Farrar and Mary Garden. It runs thus, when in Hades it is bad form to speak of the heat. Do you remember the night when Mary Garden came from the refectory of the monastery in Le Jongleur, and oh, the winsome little devil, paused on the stairway to remark to her audience, La cuisine is tres bon? The accent was indescribable. At Paris, they admired her individual French streak with exotic intonations. That night, it revealed the universal accent of a half-starved lad who had just filled his tummy, a real tuck-out. The joy of life. How human she was. It is the sartorial technique of Miss Garden that is supreme. Her taste in costumes is impeccable. In the eternal game of making masculine eyes misbehave, she is quite irresistible. But this orchidaceous Circe, this uncommon or garden variety, does not with her fatal filters transform men into the unmentionable animal, rather does she cause them to scurry after their vocabulary and lift up their voices in rhetorical praise and that is something to have accomplished. Did you ever read Casuals of the Sea by William McPhee, a fiction I had the honor to introduce to the American reading public? On page 443, there occurs at the chapter in the following dialogue, Mother. Yes, Minnie. Mother, I was just thinking what fools men are. What utter fools? But oh, mother, dear mother, what fools we are, not to find it out sooner. Minnie had seen a bit of life on the continent. She was then snug in the landlocked harbor of stagnant matrimonial waters. But she understood men. Miss Garden is a profounder philosopher than Minnie Briscoe. She knew her public sinner, and the result is Mary Garden. Kabiu, Boira. I have been asked whether Miss Garden believes that she is the wonderful artiste I believe her to be. I really don't know. 
but I feel assured that if she discovers she does not measure up to all the qualities ascribed to her she will promptly develop them, such as the plastic, involutionary force of this extraordinary woman. 3. The Baby, the Critic, and the Guitar George Sainsbury, that blunt literary critic who always called a cat a cat, wrote a study of Charles Baudelaire in an English magazine at least 40 years ago. It practically introduced the poet to English readers, although Swinburne had imported no little of the poisonous honey from France in Las Veneris. Professor Sainsbury told of a friend to whom he had shown the etching of Francois Flaming after Herrera's The Baby and the Guitar. So, said the friend, you like this picture? I always thought you hated babies. The remark is a classic example of that sin against the Holy Ghost of criticism, the confusion of two widely varying intellectual substances, a mixing up of the babies with a vengeance. The anecdote may serve to point a moral if not to adorn my sermon. The operatic undertow of the past season cast up strange flotsam and jetsam and derelicts, usually in the shape of letters. Letters signed and unsigned. Two I select as illustrating the baby and the guitar crocs. I stand for the baby and two celebrated singing girls represent the guitar. Both letters are unsigned, both reveal a woman's handwriting, though different women. The first rally accuses the dignified author of being madly in love with Mary Garden, the second wonders why I worship Margaret Matsonar. Now, the venerable age of the present alleged and versatile great lover Leo Dietrich Stein should look to his laurels, might serve as an implicit denial of these charges, were it not the fact that there are hoary-headed sinners abroad seeking whom they may devour. If I were a young chap I should pay no attention, but being as old as I am I proudly confess my crimes, merely pausing to ask, who isn't in love with Mary Garden and Margaret Matsonar? Their audiences, to an unprejudiced eye, seem to be very much so, men, women, and children alike. Why not that worm of all work, the music critic? We, too, have feelings like any other humans. But worse follows. A sympathetic singer sent me a telegram which read thus, Why doesn't your wife put you behind bars? To which I promptly replied, Celtic fashion, by asking another question, which one, meaning, of course, which bar? Here is a concrete case of the baby and the guitar muddle. One can't praise the art of Mary Garden without loving the woman. One can't admire the opulent voice of Margaret Matsonar without being dragged a hopeless slave at her triumphant chariot wheels, a critic butchered to make a prima donna's holiday. Absurd. And there are others. What of Radiant Geraldine with the starry eyes? What of Frida Hempel, exquisite Violetta, delicious Countess in the Rose Cavalier? And what of Olive Fremstad, always beautiful, and a soul whose tenderness is without peer, a sequin who plucks at your heartstrings because of her pity-breeding loveliness, or is that dazzling witch, country, and to whose beauty the years have lent a tragic, expressive mask.
there were queens, too, before Agamemnon's. Lily Lehman, Emma Eames, Lillian Norica, Emma Camp, did we not burn incense under the nostrils of those beautiful women and great artists? Go to. Nor was our praise accorded only to the girls of yesteryear. The Duresques, Victor Morrill, Max Alvarius, perfect a type of the manly idol as Harry Montague or Charles Coughlin as stately, if slightly frigid, pull planket upon them we shower our warmest enthusiasms. And Ignace Jan Paderewski, once premier opus of Poland was he neglected? The piano god par excellence. No, such generalizations are unfair. The average music critic or dramatic critic is nothing if not versatile in his tastes. Remember that either one has opportunities to see and hear the most comely faces and sweetest voices. Nevertheless, I know of none who ever lost his head. We play no favorites. I also admit that this apologetic tone is the kind of excuse that is accusatory. But dash. But there is another name which slipped the memory of my fault finders. What of Rosina Gali, whose pedal technique is as perfect as the vocal technique of Miss Hempel, whose mimike is as wonderful in its way as are the hieratratic attitudes and patibulary gestures of Mary, the celebrated serpent of Old Nile. Don't we, to a man, adore Rosina? Thunderous affirmations assail the Welkin. And then there is the poet's secret, as Bernard Shaw, the Uncle Gurnmans of British politics, has it. The secret in question is as simple as Paul Chanel's. Do you realize that to a writer interested in his art such women as Mary Garden or Margaret Matson are serve as a peg for his polyphonic prose or as models upon which to drape his cloth of silver when writing of Geraldine Farrar? A susceptible critic may perforce sigh like a symphonic furnace, but apart from such fatuities he can't keep up the excitement without a lot of emotional stoking. And coal is so costly this year. That alone negates the assertion of undue sentimentality. Pooh. I shouldn't give a hang for a critic so cold that he couldn't write overheated prose, Byzantine prose, purple-patched and swaggeringly rhythmed when facing these golden girls. Passionate press agents, indeed, but in the strict sense intended when Philip Hale struck off that memorial phrase. There is Pitt Sanborn with his lithe moon-blonde wonderful Mary, which I envy him, after my spilth of adjectives he limbs in five words the garden goddess, themes, those singers, for gorgeous vocables, nothing more. Footlight prose quickly forgotten if you take from the shelf in your library the beloved essays of Cardinal Newman and swim in the cool currents of his silvery style. A panacea for the strained, morbid, fantastic atmosphere of grand opera. Illustration from a photograph by Destralecki. Rosina Gali. A character in one of Goethe's novels Wilhelm Meister exclaims, Five minutes more of this, and I confess everything. Another such season of overwrought reportage and my bag of highly colored phrases, all my trick adjectives, would be exhausted, 
else gone stale, and the same gang of girls ever expecting new and more miraculous homage in four languages with a brass band around the corner. Oh. La. La. There was one critic that did fall in love with an actress. His name is Hector Berlioz, and he celebrated the charms of Henrietta Smithson, English-born, a guest at a Parisian theater, by passionately pounding the kettle drums in the orchestra. His amatory tattoo, coupled with his flaming locks, finally attracted the lady's attention, and after she broke her leg and was forced to abandon the stage she had her revenge she married the kettle drum critic and composer and lived unhappily ever afterward. Yet the feeling against critics persists, probably prompted by envy. In a Dublin theater gallery, a fight broke out, and one chap was getting the worst of it. His more powerful adversary was pushing him over the rail into the orchestra when a wag called out, don't waste him. Kill a fiddler with him. Nowadays he would say, kill a critic. But sufferance is the badge of our tribe. There are times when I long for the unaffected charm of Heller rather than Chopin, when I prefer to gaze at Wagner's grain rather than hear Brunhild sing. Mary Garden makes herself beautiful, if only by thinking beautiful. Whatever happens, I must be an emerald, said Antoninus of the emerald's morality. Havelock Ellis asserts, the exquisite things of life are today as rare and as precious as ever they were. She is rare and precious in Melisande, Monavanna, Jean, and other roles. And what imaginative intensity is hers. But I don't care a fig for the depraved creatures of the lower empire she so marvelously portrays. It is merry with a strain of mysticism, the woodland face she shows us, its nascent soul modulating into the supreme suffering and sorrow of motherhood. Her bed of death in Melisand is one of the high consolations in the memory of a critic whose existence has been spent in the quagmire of mediocrity. In the kingdom of the mystics there are many mansions, and Garden lives in one at times. But the Detroit lemons she pictures are often repugnant. The decadent art of Byzance. The infernal feminine. A vase exquisitely carved containing corruption. Sculptured slime. You close your eyes but open your fingers. The temptation to peep is irresistible. In his illuminated studies of Fremstad, Farrar, Garden, Mazarin, Interpreters and Interpretations, Carl Van Vechten says that to Miss Garden a wig is the all-important thing. Once I have donned the wig of a character, I am that character. It would be difficult for me to go on the stage in my own hair. However, she did so in Louise, adds the critic. Felix Horman reports that when he asked her if she would be content to give up singing and become a dramatic artist, she replied, no, I need the music. I depend on it. Music is my medium of expression. An art amphibian, hybrid, hers. The flying fish. The bird that swims. 
the dubious trail of the epicene is not a modern note. Rome and Alexandria knew it. It is vile, soulless, yet fascinating. Miss Garden incarnates it as no other modern since the divine Sarah. She is cerebral, and a cerebral is defined by Arthur Simons as one who feels with the head and thinks with the heart. Richard Strauss is a prime exemplar. The image suggests both apoplexy and angina pectoris, yet it serves. She is as hard as steel and Louise or Cleopater, yet how melting is Mona and Melisand. She may be heartless for all I know, and that is in her favor, artistically considered, for Steeplejack hath enjoined, a cool head and a wicked heart will conquer the world. Also, what shall it profit a woman if she saves her soul but Seth love? Cynical Steeplejack? Yet, a half-truth though not the upper half of that shy goddess, truth. As for Margaret Matsonar, her art and personality transport the imagination to more exotic climes. That somber and magnificent woman, who seems to have stepped from a fresco of Hans Mackhart, himself a follower of Paolo Veronese, is a singing Caterina Cornero. She brought back an element of lyric grandeur to her pale operatic life, a Judith, a Deborah, Boadicea, Belchis, Clytemnestra, Delilah, Amneris, or Ahalaba, all those splendid tragic shapes of the antique world she evokes, and in her singing there is a largeness of dramatic utterance that proclaims her the line royal, Lehman, Brandt, Ternina, Fremstad, Schumann Heinck. Is it at all remarkable that I admire Matsonar? And now that we have cleared away some cobwebs of misapprehension with the aid of the baby and the guitar, let me relate a story of Chateaubriand, that eternal philanderer, as I once named him, who met at Rome Gay Hortense Allart, afterward Madame Meritance. The supreme master of French prose regretfully exclaimed to her, Ah, if I had back my fifty years. Thereupon the spreadly lady replied, Why not wish for twenty-five? No, moodily returned the ambassador, fifty will do. Which recalls the witty design of Farine, representing a very old man apostrophizing the shadow of his past. Oh, if I only had again my sixty-five years. I should be glad to have my three score and ten if only to tell those great ladies of opera how much I admire them. Burkis is will and done. Another picture and I shall have done. Listen. I, many years ago, visited the Fondation Ste Perrine at Autuil, an institution endowed by the Empress Eugenie, one in which the benevolence is so cloaked as not to hurt the sensibilities of the resident superannuated ladies and gentlemen. The company boasted noble origins. Among the ladies I met was a Polish-born Marquise, with brilliant eyes and wonderful white hair, her own. She had studied with Chopin. She said he was fickle and that George Sand was often jealous of his pupils. For me she sang in a sweet, true, but quavering voice Chopin's maiden's wish and compelled tears. 
The Marquise then tinkled with a still small tone, a nocturne by field upon a pianoforte whose ivory keys looked as if they exhaled pearly sighs. She gently coquetted with a touch of exquisite sarmatian evasiveness. For me, she was adorable, although if she had laughed, her face would have cracked its artistic plastering. What a new Diana Poitier! What wit, fire, malice were in the glance of her soft, faded blue eyes. What a magically youthful heart. She must have been more than fourscore. But yet a woman.